this week, GNC and CEC Entertainment file for Chapter 11. Certain Hertz ABS holders object to company's motion to reject auto leases. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding. And I'm Raksha Manjanath. We have a special guest for our deep dive today, Elliot Gans, General Counsel and Director of Public Policy for the Loan Syndications and Trading Association. And legal analyst Kevin Eckhart will discuss SDNY's recent decision in Kirshner versus J.P. Morgan, which found that leveraged loans do not qualify as securities subject to SEC regulations. It's Sunday, June 28th. GNC Holdings Incorporated, a Pittsburgh-based retailer of health and wellness products, filed for Chapter 11 on June 23rd in the District of Delaware. With the restructuring support agreement in hand, signed by holders of more than 92% of the company's tranche B2 term loans and holders of more than 87% of the pre-petition ABL FILO term loans. The debtors intend to pursue a dual-track going-concern sale process and standalone balance sheet restructuring with the goal to exit Chapter 11, quote, in the fall, according to a press release. GNC also intends to use the Chapter 11 process to, quote, accelerate the closure of at least 800 to 1,200 stores, says the release. As part of the restructuring, the company will also seek separate relief under Canadian insolvency law. A significant majority of the lenders supporting the RSA have reached an agreement in principle with the debtors and Harbin Pharmaceutical Group, or Hayao, for a $760 million sale of the company to Hayao, which, if finalized, would be executed through a Section 363 sale. The transaction would be implemented instead of the standalone plan if consummated. According to a term sheet, a $760 million sale price is inclusive of a new $400 million committed facility with the Bank of China, a significant majority of the lenders supporting the RSA have reached an agreement in principle with the debtors and Harbin Pharmaceutical Group, or Hayao, for a $760 million sale of the company to Hayao, which, if finalized, would be executed through a Section 363 sale. The sale transaction would be implemented instead of the standalone plan if consummated. According to a term sheet, the $760 million sale price is inclusive of a new $400 million committed facility with the Bank of China and guaranteed by Haiyo, a $210 million second lane take-back instrument that would either be issued to term loan lenders by the company or a new company formed pursuant to a bid auction process with terms including payable in-kind interest of L plus 6%, a 3% annual cash fee paid semi-annually with maturity of six years, and dip financing of $75 million, which Harbin would provide, quote, together with IBC, and which would have a six-month maturity, plus the draw of a revolver up to $75 million. Alternatively, if the sale does not occur, the debtors would implement a standalone plan that would be supported by a dip facility providing $130 million in new liquidity and a committed $525 million exit facility. The tranche B2 term lenders providing the new money dip would receive 100% of the reorganized equity, subject to dilution from a management incentive plan and warrants for 5% of the reorganized equity if unsecured creditors accept the plan. Convertible note holders that would be part of the unsecured class filed an objection to the debtor's proposed dip financing, taking issue with the dip milestones, which they say should be rejected to allow, quote, sufficient marketing of the debtor's business and assets and with the debtor's proposed interim roll-up. 
However, that objection was overruled at the first day hearing, and the debtors received interim approval, allowing them to draw $30 million from the facility. CEC Entertainment, the proprietor of Chuck E. Cheese and Peter Piper Pizza, with several affiliates, filed petitions late Tuesday in Southern District of Texas. The company is indirectly owned by Apollo Global Management, which holds 98% of the equity in the debtor's parents, Queso Holdings, which is also a debtor in these cases. As of the petition date, the debtors have not disclosed any post-petition financing and have indicated that they are in negotiations with certain of their lenders over potential use of the cash collateral. However, according to the first day declaration, the debtors believe that Credit Suisse, the collateral agent under the first lien credit agreement, has perfected liens on a, quote, substantial portion of the debtor's cash within the 90-day period before the petition date. And as a result, such liens are potentially subject to avoidance. The company attributes the bankruptcy filing to the impact of COVID-19, saying that Chuck E. Cheese and Peter Piper Pizza operated in their ordinary course of business and remained profitable until the pandemic. As a, quote, protective measure, CEC drew $105 million from its revolver on March 18th, constituting nearly all of its available incremental liquidity, the first day declaration notes. Howell explains, however, that the revolver draw, quote, could not substitute for ordinary course operations. The first day declaration of CFO James Howell states that the debtors are in ongoing discussions with, quote, various constituencies and have received multiple, quote, transaction proposals. He adds that the company has also received unsolicited expressions of interest from third parties in conducting diligence in connection with a potential transaction. On Wednesday, certain ABS lenders to Hertz's U.S. rental fleet filed an objection to the debtor's motion to reject unexpired leases for 144,372 vehicles of the nearly 500,000 in the U.S. rental fleet, which the debtors contend will result in an estimated monthly savings of approximately $80.3 million. The ABS lenders assert in their objection that Hertz's ABS securitization program has, for nearly two decades, been, quote, based on the shared understanding of literally hundreds of parties that investors in the HVF2 ABS nodes would be protected by Hertz's obligations under a single integrated master lease. Further, the objection argues, the terms of the master lease itself contain terms that apply to the fleet as a whole, quote, that could not be applied to hundreds of thousands of individual leases. The ABS lenders represent that they, quote, have potentially hundreds of millions of dollars or more to lose based on the outcome of this motion. According to the ABS lenders, there is a total of $9.8 billion of HVF2 ABS notes outstanding, representing a $1.1 billion decrease from the outstanding amount pre-petition. The objecting ABS lenders, which include Deutsche Bank in its capacity as agent, the MTN Steering Committee, and the Bank of New York Mellon in its capacity as HVF trustee and HVF2 trustee, also asked the court to the extent that it cannot determine the divisibility issue from the text of the master lease and existing record to issue a scheduling order for discovery and a trial. The official Committee of Unsecured Creditors filed a short statement in support of the debtor's rejection motion, asserting that, quote, the debtor's resources cannot be depleted to pay rent on account of vehicles that sit idle and provide no benefit to the debtor's estates. On the island of Puerto Rico, as a historic agreement with the Federal Emergency Management on funding for post-hurricane energy works near finalization, the head of the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, Governing Board's Finance and Bankruptcy Committee, 
raised questions at a Wednesday meeting of the Utilities Governing Board regarding the feasibility of a debt restructuring deal based on the utilities' current rates. Meanwhile, PREPA Governing Board member Charles Bayliss signaled that a PREPA debt restructuring that contemplates rates in the current 20% per kilowatt-hour range could undercut the utility and lead to a second bankruptcy amid rapid changes in a complex energy industry. Bayless signaled that he was raising the issue during the meeting after first consulting with Raf Creel, the PREPA governing board chairman, but stressed that his views on the intersection of rates and debt restructuring are absolutely his own and do not represent the view of PREPA. Separately, the Preliminary Operating and Maintenance, or O&M, contract for the concession of the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority's transmission and distribution system requires PREPA to receive approvals from the Title III court that are, quote, reasonably acceptable to system management company Luma Energy as one of the conditions precedent that must be satisfied before the handover of the operations and maintenance services to the operator can occur. The Puerto Rico Public-Private Partnerships Authority, or P3A, posted the preliminary contract on its website on Tuesday along with the P3A Privatization Committee report, recommending that the selection of Luma as the preferred proponent. The May 15th Partnership Committee report sheds light on the incorporation of amendments, including the supplemental agreement, into the accord to address concerns raised by the Promisa Oversight Board regarding the timing of PREPA's debt restructuring in Title III. A $10.04 billion fiscal 2021 general fund budget resolution is still working its way through the Capitol after different versions were passed in the Senate and House of Representatives this week. Increasing the likelihood that the Promita Oversight Board will certify its own spending package for a fourth straight year. Puerto Rico's House of Representatives approved a $10.04 billion fiscal 2021 general fund budget resolution on Wednesday. The joint resolution approved by a lower chamber is a substitute bill that replaces the $10.04 billion House Joint Resolution 734 filed by the Promisa Oversight Board and the $10.2 billion House JR 744 filed by the administration of Governor Wanda Vasquez. The Senate passed the $10.04 billion resolution at the legislative deadline on Thursday night after substantial amendments were introduced in committee and on the floor of the upper chamber. The Senate move came after it voted earlier in the day to also approve Vasquez's budget resolution. Separately, the Oversight Board said in a press release on Thursday it is proposing to replenish the Emergency Reserve, which is a part of the Certified Commonwealth Fiscal Plan with up to $536 million from government treasury single-account cash and previous year budget surpluses through a special appropriation to replenish funds tapped to respond to natural disasters and the COVID-19 pandemic. The proposed replenishment is part of the goal to fund the emergency reserve with about $1.7 million over 10 years. Other top stories were Chesapeake to file Chapter 11 on Sunday in Houston with RSA, revolving lenders to provide dip including more than $900 million of new money plus roll-up component, Judge Masley denies preliminary injunction request from Apollo, Angelo Gordon, Gamut, Josh Montali enters order confirming PG&E plan.
And now, as always, here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Well, thank you, Roxha. Good morning, folks, and welcome to the Working Week. As always, please take a look at our weekly Ford calendar released early every Monday morning. has far more detail than I can compress into my 90-second slot. Anyways, let's see what kind of fun the Cosmos has in store for us this week, shall we? Monday, June 29th, we have a settlement hearing in Sanchez Energy Mole Friends and an emergency hearing in Alta Mesa. Tuesday, June 30th, Denberry Resource. You have a 7.8 million coupon due on your 6 and 3, 6.375 converts to 2024, and there's an early tender deadline in AMC. Quite a few happens down at the courthouse or Zoom or however they're doing it these days, including an omnibus and Intel SAT, couple things in Diamond Offshore, and a hearing inserted as Simmons, the mattress people. And earnings are not forgotten with Excella. Wednesday, July 1st, hearings of various sorts of Dean Foods, Acorn and Verity, and earnings from Macy's SM Energy has a small coupon due. Thursday, July 2nd, day before a holiday, and this tends to be the case, not a lot on the plate. Looks like we have some hearings in Murray, Alta Mesa again, and a DS hearing in Verity. Friday, July 3rd, of course, is a holiday. Past few years, I spent it out in a tiny little town way out in West Texas, where they celebrate with a pet parade with prizes. Last year's winner was a rooster, a Barnevelder, as I recall. Wonderful breed there, good for laying and frying. Anyways, said Rooster was dressed up as Wyatt Earp, who was a sheriff back in the old days. And that there is all you're going to get from me. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it, and I'm passing it now over to my friend and colleague, Kevin Eckhart, who's going to talk with Elliot Gans of the LSTA on why leverage loans are not securities subject to SEC oversight. Take it away, boys. Hi, this is Kevin Eckhart, a legal analyst with Reorg. I'm here for a discussion today with Elliot Gans, the General Counsel and Director of Public Policy for the Loan Syndications and Trading Association, uh, which uh, deals with uh, leverage loan issues, distressed in part, as well as secondary trading of, of debt in the markets. And we're here to talk about the recent decision in the Millennium Health case uh, relating to the classification of leverage loans as securities. Um, Elliot, let's talk a little bit about the decision before we get into the implications. Who was the plaintiff in this in the Millennium Health case, and what was he? What claims was he asserting, and, and what was his his argument with respect to the leverage loans that were involved in that case? Sure. So Kirshner was um, the trustee in a lender claim trust that came out of the Millennium Lab uh, bankruptcy. Um, the case arose out of a $1.775 billion syndicated loan to Millennium um, that was uh, syndicated, arranged by J.P. Morgan and a, a couple of other banks. Uh, the lending syndicate included around 70 lenders, institutional lenders, um, consisting of about uh, 400 funds. And um, the loan went south uh, pretty soon after it closed. In, in um, in June 14th, two months after the closing, company lost a, a major civil trial uh, with, with a, a big damages number. And then in May 2015, uh, they settled a litigation with the Department of Justice uh, with respect to violations of the False Claims Act. And again, had an, a, a, another major fine to pay. And shortly thereafter, in uh, November 2015, they, uh, they filed for bankruptcy. Um, in August 2017, the trustee, you know, Kirshner filed the the, uh, the claim. And what's unique about it, and why we're here to discuss it, 
is in addition to common law fraud claims, uh, the, the trustee alleged that the uh, banks violated uh, state blue, blue sky securities laws. Okay. And, and so basically he was saying that misstatements had been made that were actionable under the securities laws in the process of, of syndicating the loans, namely that they had not disclosed the possibility of these massive judgments that ended up hitting just shortly after the syndication was completed. Correct. And, and the, the, the important point is that they, are, they were saying you violated the securities laws because the loans were really securities, not loans. Um, and okay, so, yeah, go ahead. so I'm sorry for cutting you off. So, so what arguments did the defendants make for dismissal of these claims? And by, and by defendants, I mean the, you know, the, the syndicators um, and, and the folks targeted for syndicating the loan. Well, well the banks made it, you know, uh, filed a motion to dismiss on, on, on a very basic argument. Uh, you can't bring a securities law claim on something that's not a security. And what they supported that defense with was an analysis of the facts in this case against Supreme Court and Second Circuit precedent. Um, there's, you know, there's a clear four-pronged test. And they said, if you uh, apply the test to the facts of Millennium, uh, it's clear this is not a security. Right. And that, that four-pronged test, I, I think that includes factors such as um, the, the breadth of distribution or syndication of the facility, whether it was sort of publicly available, um, and, and the market, the secondary market that would develop from that, and, and whether the public was able to participate in, in the syndication. Yeah, there's a, there's a four-pronged test, you know, quickly. The motivations that would prompt the buyer and the seller in, in, to enter into the transaction, the, as you say, the breadth of the plan distribution, and the reasonable expectations of the investing public. And the fourth, and again, I think very important in this case, the existence of a risk-reducing, of risk-reducing elements, such as another regulatory scheme that would govern the transaction. So those well, because- are the four prongs. Because if, if leverage loans were deemed to be securities in a case like this, they would be regulated by the FDC and by state securities regulators, correct? Yeah. The reason this case is important is that the term loan in Millennium is really no different from any, in terms of its structure and distribution plan, is really no different from any other term loan in the 1.2 or whatever that number is right now. 1.2, 1.3 billion trillion dollar uh, syndicated term loan market. So, a ruling that the Millennium Loan is a security would implicate all of those loans, including existing loans, not just loans going forward. And as you say, the SEC would necessarily have jurisdiction over those, you know, former loans or loans that are now securities. Um, and many, many things would change because of that. Uh, we'll, we'll get into the implications a little more broadly in a second. Um, the LSTA and at least one other uh, trade group filed amicus briefs in this proceeding. What were the? What did the LSTA focus on in, in its arguments that uh, 
leverage loans should not be classified as securities? Um, I think we, we, we focus primarily on the, uh, the existence of a regulatory regime and, and, and the expectation of the investing public. So if you think about the regulatory regime and traditionally banks have been regulated by the Federal Reserve, the FDIC and the OCC in their, in their lending platforms. And that is still the case today. Um, so that's very clearly something that the Reeves decision, the Supreme Court precedent decision contemplates. I think it's also important, and this is something that, that, that we really stressed, the SEC and the regulators are very, very aware of the existence of the leveraged loan market, yet they've never taken the position that these loans are securities. In, in fact, in 2010, um, when uh, in, in, in the, in the Dodd-Frank Act, Act post the, the financial crisis, the definition of security was uh, expanded significantly, yet the legislation did not include uh, the syndicated loan market or these syndicated term loans. So I think that's a lot of evidence that the regulatory agencies understand that this is not a security and shouldn't be treated as such. Um, the the trustee, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. I, and let me apologize for, we, of course, we're doing this via Zoom, so it's a little more awkward than our usual. No, no problem. The, but go ahead, I'm sorry. The, 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 um, the other important part of this is the, the uh, test that says, what are market expectations? So it's really hard to say that anyone who signed on to this term loan thought they were getting into a security. Uh, this market, is, while the, very much intertwined, meaning that people who do loans often do securities, very much know the difference between the two and make very clear decisions every single day. Do I want the bond? Do I want the loan? The loan documentation is very, very clear that it's a loan, not a security. So I think in terms of the market expectations, I think it's a very strong argument that this should be treated not as a security, but as a loan. Okay, and the trustee's position was basically since these, as I understand it, since these the loans are now sort of traded um, openly and syndicated, and then that there's a secondary market for them that's developed, that they should be treated the same as bonds, right? Yes, and 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 um, the test, in, the Supreme Court test, is referred to as the family resemblance test, and I think what the trustee is saying is that. The plan distribution really looks very much like a securities distribution, you know, private placement. And there's really no difference between the two. It emphasized over and over that um, the, the loan went into 400 different funds and that it was uh, that the, the banks, the agent solicited hundreds of firms to, uh, to join that loan. So I think that's that 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 was a, a big part of the focus. So so procedurally, the motion to dismiss was converted to a motion for summary judgment, and the trustee filed the cross motion for summary judgment. No, no, it was just it was just a motion to dismiss. It, okay, it never got to the uh, 
summary judgment yet. Okay. So the judge considered the papers on this. He didn't do oral argument, and the papers were closed some time ago. Um, he issued his decision last month. What did the judge rule in that opinion? So the judge um, correctly just applied the Reeves versus Ernst & Young test, that four-prong test that we were talking about, concluded that three of the tests favored a, a, a ruling that this was not a security, and one of them, uh, the, 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 um, the first test, uh, it was really hard to tell whether it went, went one way or the other. So essentially said, uh, I don't think the plan of distribution resembles that of the security. I think the existence of the bank regime that, that um, governs loans uh, suggests that it's not a security. Um, and I think market expectations based on what the credit agreement says and what the, what the offering memorandum says and makes very clear that it's a loan, all three of those suggest this is not a security. And then uh, he said on that basis, uh, the, rule, the ruling is that uh, you cannot bring the securities law claim because it's not a security and then dismiss the claim. Now, did you speak with the SEC and the regulators while this was going on and before the decision to sound them out? And if so, what was their position on, uh, on the ultimate question of whether leveraged loans were secured? Sure. So this was uh, actually probably the most fascinating part of this of this whole episode. Um, we initially went to the three banking agencies and the SEC. We actually went to the CFTC as well because of the Volk rule. Um, the the we, we can get into the specifics later, but the a decision that these loans were securities would have significant ish, uh, implications on the Volcker Rule as the Volcker Rule applies to loans. Um, the Volcker Rule happened to be open for reconsideration at this time when we got involved in the Kirshner case uh, over a year ago. And the immediate uh, goal of our conversations with the regulators were was to discuss the Volcker Rule. Um, and we explained to them that how terrible it would be if this became a security under the Volcker rule. Um, in the course of those conversations, uh, obviously we used the opportunity to go beyond the Volcker rule and to get into a lot of the details that, 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 uh, that go beyond the Volcker rule and, and how it would fundamentally change the market. The SEC at the very highest level uh, meaning the chairman's office took this really, really seriously. And I think they understood the implications very, very clearly, um, more than the banking agencies, as you would expect, because they are the ones who regulate securities and, and, and understand what it would mean. Um, they appointed people across their divisions um, from trading and markets, from IM, investment management, and so on, corporation finance, to look at this issue and, and explore it. And we had a series of meetings going into, into tremendous detail about what the implications might be. Um, the SEC is in, uh, in a very difficult position here. Um, my feeling from the chairman's office was they didn't want this to happen. 
I think they understood this would not be good for markets generally, and probably that they didn't want this and that they didn't have the bandwidth to cover it. Um, yet, as a very uh, important principle, the SEC also says something can be, an instrument can be a security under the facts and the particular facts and circumstances. So <clears throat> they're loath to wave a category of instruments um, because it would violate that, uh, that, that principle that something couldn't, can be a security depending on the facts and circumstances. So as regulators, it's difficult for them to say, you know, especially to, to the permanent staff that absolutely this is something that we don't have authority over because the regulator's general tendency is to take authority over things. Yeah, and you, 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 said, you said an important thing. We were talking with the chairman's office. Um, there were certainly people involved on the staff. The chairman's office is, a, are, you know, they are political appointees and they may have a current view. The staff may have a different view and may be more inclined to think that some, that an instrument is a security because, you know, it's almost the hammer nail uh, mm-hmm. uh, conversation. And if something looks like a, a you know, if, so, if you have a hammer, if you are a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And um, if you are a securities regulator, things tend to look at, like securities. Um, that was not the view of the, print, of the, of the uh, chairman's office. And which raises the question about, you know, what about the next chairman's office? Well, we'll get into that in a second. Let's step back and, and talk about the implications and why this is this decision is such a big deal. You mentioned um, the Volcker rule and its impact. Um, what, what impact would the decision, had it gone the other way, let's just say there was a, a motion for summary judgment, a cross motion going the other direction, and the judge had ruled in favor of the trustee and said these are securities, um, what impact would that have had under the Volcker rule? Um, so I want to qualify this answer because I think you raise another important question. I don't know that a motion, a, a, a judgment on a, on a motion for summary, judge, for summary judgment at a district court would have caused this, but certainly uh, something that went up to the Second Circuit would likely result in, in what we're now about to talk about. But let's just say for argument's sake, say there's a ruling by a significant court that these are securities. The effects would be uh, just uh, existential, I would argue. Um, some borrowers, uh, many borrowers would not be able to access this market because they simply don't have the information necessary to satisfy the securities laws. Um, from a, from a, uh, a borrower's uh, perspective also, um, there'd, be, there'd be much less flexibility, there'd be less ability to manage the, uh, the lending group. Um, they'd be much less, uh, it, it, things would be much uh, slower uh, in terms of execution, uh, uh, you know, in, in terms of they'd have difficult decisions regarding disclosure of sending information, much less flexibility with waivers, consents, and amendments. Um, those are some, just a few of the things. Um, um, on, on the lender's side, I think you have 
similarly less flexibility with bespoke terms, but it goes way beyond that. Um, you would likely, if you were a bank, have to uh, book the loans in the broker deal. You would be subject to capital rules. Um, you you uh, would have securities law liability on your uh, not just new new loans, but on your existing portfolio. So so the what we were finding in, in our discussions with the banks is that the deeper you you looked and the more you sort of peeled the onion, more and more issues came out, and they were um, they were very substantial. So this decision takes a considerable amount of pressure um, off of the market when it comes to those kind of implications and, and yeah. regular concerns. Yeah, and, and to get to the Volcker rule just very quickly, um, one very basic issue is the Volcker rule currently uh, excludes banks from the prop trading part of the Volcker rule, the first part. If the loan uh, is characterized as security, that exclusion would no longer apply and loans would now be subject to the prop trading. That would be a pretty big issue for the banks. Secondly, and, and here's, you know, this, this was at one time a huge issue and may not be anymore, even aside from the decision. Um, banks currently, U.S. banks currently own $90 billion of AAA securities in CLOs. CLOs um, uh, are what, what are known as covered funds under the Volcker Rule. And AAA notes are what's known as an ownership interest in a covered fund. Those are prohibited for banks in under the Volcker Rule. And the only reason they're permitted for ownership of CLO notes is because of an exclusion for quote unquote loan securitizations. If loans were characterized as securities, that loan securitization exemption would no longer exist. The $90 billion of uh, AAA notes owned by banks today would become ineligible um, investments and they would have to get rid of them. And there's no grandfathering. So that would be massively disruptive to the CLO market and the loan market since there would there would be just a massive sell-off of these loans basically all at once. Right, unless you could get um, some regulatory relief, which is, you know, which would require five agencies to give and um, would be extraordinarily difficult to get. It would be um, massively disruptive. But you, you were able to, my understanding is you were able to at least get some um, re, um, agency relief on this issue right. um, with respect to that exception. Right, so that issue in the, in the pending uh, final rule, which actually uh, we're hearing is coming out on Thursday um, this week, um, we expect that issue, the second issue, to be resolved um, so that the Kirshner decision and the, the issue of whether the loans or securities or not would not impact that. But I believe that the prop trading issue would still exist. Mm -hmm. Okay. And of course, as you alluded to before, that kind of a, of a regulatory solution from this SEC and from its leadership um, might not be, uh, might not have been a viable option if uh, there is an administration change come next January and that the brass of the SEC decided to take a different approach. And I, I think that's right. And I also, I think it's, it's 
also important to take into account what's going on now it, because of the, uh, the COVID virus in, term, in the markets. So A, you might have a, uh, an administration and, and a, a leadership at the SEC that would be less inclined um, to go where this, this SEC leadership seems to be willing to, to go. And secondly, you may have a market where the default rate um, is very high on a relative basis. And some of the results in this you know, crisis environment may be pretty bad um, and with relatively low recoveries. And that may make the SEC much less inclined to uh, carve out the loans from the securities laws. Um, so I think it's, I think in general, because it's a political um, appointment, you know, the, the chairman's office is, is political, um, but I think that's exacerbated by the environment we're in now. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's move on to what's the next step in this litigation. Where does it go from here? Um, well, the the um, the uh, plaintiff uh, is currently uh, requesting uh, you know, filing a motion uh, to the court to permit it to uh, amend its complaint. Mm-hmm. That complaint that 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 motion will probably be granted. Interestingly, um, that um, complaint, that amended complaint, is not going to replead the securities law um, uh, uh, claims, which makes sense because the judge ruled on these facts, and these facts can't really change. So that's not it's not really that surprising. But what is interesting about this is that um, the the plaintiff cannot appeal this to the Second Circuit until the repled uh, uh, common law claims are completely resolved. Um, so the bottom line is this may take years until this case gets to the Second Circuit on the securities laws claims. And of course, it could also be settled. Um, but if it's not settled, it's, it's, it may be years before the, the Second Circuit sees this. So you have you have a situation where you have one district judge in one of ninety three districts who's made this ruling, and it's an, it's an important district in the Southern District of New York. Um, but this could be challenged in other districts, or, or even in front of other judges um, in, in New York, and they could come to a different determination on the issue. Yeah, and let me give you one example. Um, the judge ruled that the plan of distribution looked more like that of a loan rather than a security. Um, and specifically said that he was not fussed by the fact that the loan was offered to hundreds of, of, uh, of institutional investors. Um, a judge in another district court could look at those same facts, for example, and say, wow, this was in 400 funds and was offered to hundreds of institutions, that kind of looks more like a security. Um, or, so, or, you, or you could have a case where um, the, the syndication was broader and there were, say, 700, and a judge could say, well, you know, I can distinguish 
that decision on the grounds that there's a couple hundred more and this is therefore a little qualitatively different once you get to that many people. That's correct. And, and my understanding is the judge on the, the public distribution prong of this, on the sort of secondary market uh, factor, he found that it was important that all of the transferees that were, were cited in the, in the record had complied with the transfer restrictions that were in the loan documents and the syndication documents. So you could have a situation where if that were not the case, say if some plaintiff found some non-permitted transfers had been allowed to go through where they could try and make that a distinguishing factor. Correct, and, and, and he, right. It, it, so I think it's really important that credit agreements continue to prohibit the distribution of these loans to individuals. I think that was an important factor. Um, another interesting finding, and, and, and it, it, it's again, how you look at it, um, the plaintiffs argued that the $1 million threshold for minimum size was really, really small. And the judge says, that's pretty big. So I don't think it's a security. So that was another interesting um, factor. But I think- yeah. In your uh, market, a million dollars may not be that big. Right. But I and, think and the judge was probably thinking about it more in a retail sense. Right. and. and and also the judge didn't really touch on a lot of these or, or on any of these policy issues with the threat this could pose to the market and the difficulties it might create for lenders and for, for borrowers in getting financing and the difficulties in execution, all these things. He didn't touch at all on those issues. No, this was a strict application of the Reeves decision. In fact, the judge, uh, the, the plaintiff had made a motion uh, 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 in, in opposition to the LSCA's motion uh, for the court to accept the our amicus brief, and the judge actually granted that motion. You know, denied our motion, and and you know, theoretically did not admit our amicus brief, which of course you know they read. But you know, the the, the I'm sure his clerks and he he read, but um, uh, did not uh, cite or. Uh, either directly or even indirectly, anything we said. Okay. Now, um, what do you think? You mentioned before the the COVID nineteen issue, um, and that it seems like to to the legal observer like me, who's not the financial analyst in the market, that there are a lot of issues right now that are being made. Um, that are sort of on an emergency basis, hoping things get better, hoping the cruise lines can get their boats back out there, hoping the airlines can get back up to capacity. And you suggested that uh, perhaps these loans might, this, this decision could have been even more problematic for them um, in the next two or three years if a lot of these loans, these bets don't turn out to have been um, based on solid assumptions about COVID-19 recoveries. Um, you think that, that there is a, a possibility that the regulators might take a hard view in, in two or three years if a lot of these issuances go south? I think it will be harder politically for a new SEC to, um, to take a hands-off position if you start to see a lot of these deals go south with very bad 
um, recoveries. And um, because that, and, and you know, particularly when they involve iconic brands, companies that people know, you know, brands that people know, uh, the banking regula- regulators themselves may take a much harder view on the loan market. Um, but I think if it comes to this specific issue, uh, it, it could be, you know, again, this is really speculation, but it could be just more difficult politically for the SEC to say, no, we, 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 we're going we're gonna to stay away from this market. We're going to keep our hands off. Okay. All right. Well, Elliot, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating discussion, and you have a lot of, of interesting information to, uh, to, of course, what we lawyers just get to read in decisions and briefs. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. And thanks again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all of our podcasts on the site's media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. As always, we hope you and your families are healthy and safe. Thank you.